you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting week on the Win Win Podcast. I've been thinking a lot about the role of ecosystems in innovation and really how no impactful innovation is really ever done in a vacuum. Some questions I've been asking myself in my own role is, how will this feature or this product fit in with the other aspects of this customer or consumer's life? What is that moment where they need what I'm making most or the moment where this thing becomes top of mind for them? Today's conversation with Linda Armbruster, one of the founders and managing partners of SparkWorks, an innovation consultancy with research, design, and advisory capabilities, as well as an academic-driven arm, Spark Labs. Linda covers a lot of different aspects of innovation, ranging from client relations to her learnings as a founder to innovation-specific KPIs, and of course, how all of this interplays into the ecosystem of disruptive innovation. I loved hearing from Linda and found it really interesting to hear about innovation in Switzerland, especially when Wynn's European chapter is in London, and we do have so many listeners from across the world. I'm definitely looking forward to getting more international ladies on the podcast, so please do reach out if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the podcast. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Linda Armbruster, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So, so excited. Um, I'm really excited to talk about all things innovation with you and learn more about your role at SparkWorks, where you're a co-founder and managing partner. Today, you join us from Switzerland, and I've spoken a lot about it on this podcast, but innovation looks very different market by market. So I'd love for you to share with our guests what you think defines the innovation industry in Switzerland and in Europe as a whole. So... Switzerland is not just known for chocolate and watches. We're also known for high-end quality. And we end up um, being highly ranked on innovation rankings worldwide. But those are usually ma- uh, measured by the amount of patterns produced or registered um, in a country. So we have great universities here in Switzerland, um, the ETH here in Zurich, one of them, where a lot of young, talented people are researching new technologies. And out of that, we generate a new, a lot of new products and, and technological advancements. That being said, Switzerland is also a country of small and medium-sized enterprises. A lot of these technologies end up in small to medium-sized companies um, that not necessarily aim to a global to serve a global market. Mm-hmm. So I would say we are great at developing new technologies. We're not necessarily great at marketing ourselves or mm-hmm. scaling on a global level. Um, I've been just recently um, un- visiting a university in Jerusalem, and it's just amazing how great the Israelis are at really 
training um, their people already on a student level and then later also in the military on on building new ventures on building new startups and then also scaling those startups i think that's what switzerland is lacking a bit but on the other hand it's also really the backbone of our economy um, is the small and medium-sized um, enterprises and the variety of those in regards to usage, it's quite interesting um, on the user side um, because mm -hmm. actually the first Apple store ever outside of the U.S. was in Switzerland. And the first IKEA outside of um, Sweden was in Switzerland. If I remember correctly, the first McDonald's outside of the U.S. was in Switzerland. We have quite a diverse country. We have the German-speaking region where Zurich is, where I am placed. We also have the French-speaking region and we have the Italian-speaking region. Here in mm -hmm, Zurich, we have about 30% um, expats. So it's quite um, a diverse nation. So it kind of serves as a very good um, testing ground for companies for scaling their innovations to the European market. Um, yeah, those are a few aspects I think which are relevant when we talk about innovation here in Switzerland. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's so funny that you called out Israel. I'm actually born and raised Israeli, but the culture that we are brought with is really that startup nation mentality, that scrappy mentality. And I think it really varies market by market. So I'm curious with everything that you brought up around all the opportunities in Switzerland, as well as some of the perhaps gaps, how did your trajectory begin and how did you make your way into the innovation industry? So I actually come out of the or media, art and media background. Um, I did a bachelor in art and media here in Zurich at the art school. I loved it and hated it at the same time. Um, I realized that for me, um, that my passion and also my responsibility as an artist or later on as a designer, they go beyond just creating objects or appearances, which art is very much about and, and putting yourself as the artist in front but um, more about generating solutions that have value for users and businesses and, and the mm -hmm, society mm -hmm. as a whole. So for me, it was never so much me and my vision as an artist, but more as in how can I create value? So with that in mind, after working a couple of years in, in, in arts and visual design, I did a master's degree in strategic design, followed then by an education in design thinking at the Hassel Plattner Institute in the D School in Potsdam. Um, and I loved the D school so much that I also later went to the original one at the Stanford University to do a further education on how to then teach methodologies to, like design thinking. Um, so when I came back around seven years back to Switzerland, a young designer and innovator, at least at, in, at heart, I mm -hmm. really couldn't find the job that I was looking for. So I was very frustrated. There's a lot of entry-level jobs offers on the market, but they don't offer the kind of um, task and responsibilities that I wanted to do. So I think um, with that frustration and, and also a bit of chance and luck, I met my co-founder, Alan Cabello. And we started basically our own company. So I kind of found my own job in innovation <laughs> as I couldn't yeah. find it um, existing at that point in time. Yeah, it, it's there are so many ways to get to that that one place. Something I wanted to ask about before we get into mm -hmm. Sparkworks and you starting the company was your master's thesis. It was about the potential of negative knowledge in design-driven innovation processes. Super interested on this topic, uh, how you went about deciding on it, and, and what learnings did you gain that fed into the beginning of your innovation career, perhaps starting the venture that you're currently leading? 
I, I started off with doing research on, on kind of the failure culture or general culture in organizations. And I came up across uh, the term negative knowledge, which is a very theoretical concept. Um, basically, you have the term of positive knowledge is, is what you know. But then there's also what you don't know. And even worse, what you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> and, and that's what we call negative knowledge. Um, so basically, what, what, the way we learn traditionally, even as children, is, is by, by failing, right? Um, so you learn to walk um, by falling on your face. So you learn to know what you know and what you don't know. So this kind of very experimental um, mindset of going, going about learning and then also failing and gathering negative knowledge is what I found very, very interesting. And I was wondering, okay, how could I connect that to, to innovation processes? So if we look at innovation, at least very early stage innovation, we can see that my colleague always calls it a numbers game. Maybe one out of 100 ideas actually makes it through the funnel from the post-it to the product or service of the market. The remaining 99 are failures. But the thing is um, that we need those failures in order to gather more know-how, no, more expertise, to gather more or more negative knowledge in order to come mm -hmm. to that one successful idea. I researched a lot of um, different companies on how they actually engage with, with failure. And I came across Alessi, which is um, a kitchen utensils manufacturer in, in Italy. And what they have, which I loved, is um, that they have their little failure museum. So the design team actually meets, I think, on a monthly basis or quarterly, I don't remember exactly, but they meet in that failure museum because they say we need to surround ourselves with our failures because innovation is basically, you can imagine, it's like walking on the tip of a mountain. If you go on the left-hand side, if you go not far enough, you're failing because your products are not interesting enough. They're not pushing the envelope enough. They're not new mm -hmm. enough. But if you're not, if you're going too far, then you're also failing. So you need to kind of surround yourself um, with what didn't work, basically the negative knowledge um, in order to, to come up with new ideas and let yourself be inspired by that. But we can only have a culture of experimentation if the cost of failure is not too high. And the problem is that currently in many organizations, the cost of failure is very high. So people and teams are being managed by KPIs that are aimed at success, exploitation side of innovation. So more incrementally improving things rather than exploring new growth en engines. Mm -hmm. um, so KPIs are, are often misaligned towards really having an experimental culture where people dare to take risks, where people dare to try things out, where people dare to challenge the status quo. So if we only talk about the successes and we're missing out on the rest of it, we're missing out on the learning of that and we're missing out on celebrating those failures as well. Um, so yeah, those are some of the learnings that I took away and that I'm still trying to um, kind Implement of use in my work. Your exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I mean, so many valuable things you said. One thing that you mentioned really reminded me of, there's this venture capital fund, uh, Bessemer. They publish companies that they didn't invest in and what the reason was. And they have like this, this webpage and it's like, we didn't invest into YouTube because we saw no growth potential. Good one, right? So they like really <laughs> make fun of themselves as like one of the most successful venture capital firms, but they have, I guess, a failure museum mm-hmm. of sorts. But I guess taking it back to your work, when you started SparkWorks, Spark Lab, Spark Academy, and all of the things that, that the Spark family includes, what were some of the big failures that you initially experienced and, and how did they help you get to where you are today? Oh, there's a lot of them. Um, I mean, as an entrepreneur, right, there's so many things you need to do suddenly. You're not just, um, you're running a team, you're managing a team, but you're also running admin, accounting, business development. Mm. There's so many things you need to learn. I always say nobody teaches us uh, doing our taxes and you don't even know how to do your private taxes and suddenly you need no. to do your company taxes. There's so many things. Um, I think expectation management is something that you have to learn as saying no to your clients if they're asking Mm -hmm. for things that are infeasible we usually now we say okay we we can do two out of three things because there's I would say mainly three things that um, clients that come to us want to do or want to achieve usually in innovation they're always under time pressure so they want to get things done quickly quickly comes with Mm -hmm. money so little resources little time huh um, then they want to kind of have impact. They want to get results um, that can say um, new products, a new strategy, um, something, an approved service. Um, they want to get the results um, very specific to their organization and have an outcome that ha- can have an impact. And then third, and they want to work with new methodologies. They want to work agile. They want to work mm-hmm. collaborative. They want to work um, with their with their team. Um, but usually the people, they have never worked like this. So I have sure. new people that don't know the methodology. I want They want impact and they want it quick. And I can do two out of three. At the beginning, we were saying yes to project because we wanted to do things. But they're not necessarily feasible all three at once. So we learn how to say no um, when things don't make sense. And then I'd rather have a client come back later uh, for for another project maybe than promising something and then not being able to to deliver to deliver mm-hmm. yeah and you also brought up this notion earlier talking about KPIs and so I think KPIs in a business that's really entirely sales driven or commercially driven and maybe doesn't prioritize innovation as much will have different KPIs and you slightly touched on that what KPIs do you think are important to set for innovation whether you're working with a client or internally First of all, you need to think of what is your goal, actually, because there's also different forms of innovation. I mentioned it before. You can do exploitation. So it's more about making existing processes more efficient. And that's also being called innovation, by the way, many times. But it's also about more exploiting like really new new services, new products, um, new markets, um, new growth engines, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So so that's kind of one spectrum and there's other spectrums. So first of all, we need to consider what are we actually doing? What are our objectives out of this? And then we need mm-hmm. to think, okay, now how do we measure it best um, so that we are able to see if we're going in the right direction, if the activities that we're actually, that we're doing 
produce the right results. And that can be in there can be very different kind of KPIs. The idea with KPIs is always um, you want to be able to guide your resources, you want to be able to hold people accountable for their responsibilities, and you want to assess the effectiveness. I, I work with a client and and his um, team. They also they have a KPI on how many ideas or ventures as a team is supposed to develop in a year, but also how many projects um, they're supposed to call the plug on on the basis of hard data. So by by doing customer research, by doing experiments early on in the process in order to test. Um, you can obviously also, um, depending on, on the project, um, sometimes something like, uh, like time can, can matter when you're, when you're looking for agility or you say, sure. okay, how many like rounds of iterations are we doing, right? So we don't want, um, it's not necessarily about how long we're taking, but it's how many iterations are, are we able to do in that time? Um, I think yeah. especially for bigger organizations, agility is a really, really hard um, thing because they're just very slow. There's a lot of players that have to make decisions, that have to play along. That's also why often we come in as externals, not because our team is better, just we're not bound to their kind of, um, way, of big way of thinking, but also the heavy operational system, um, right? Sure. They need to check with legal for everything. So those mm -hmm. are different KPIs um, that we're trying to, to implement Obviously, customer feedback um, is important. The interesting thing that what's become very, very popular is, is using their quantitative um, measurements, like, like net promoter score, which is also a bit difficult. So um, again, it depends on which stage you are. Um, early on, you rather want to get like qualitative feedback um, because a, a net promoter score basically says how much would you theoretically promote or this product to, to your friends and, and colleagues. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't give you very much knowledge on, on, on the whys and then the drivers of people. So I think it's important that we open our, our, our minds when we're talking about KPIs that then can be of qualitative nature as well, not just, okay, quantitative. Innovation has an adoption curve, right? Like a very basic example is to me the Apple AirPods. I remember when they came out, people were like, so it's like the wired headphones without the wire. And and there was just like such such a negative reaction to when they initially came out. And now, I mean, AirPods have, have largely driven what's happening in the in the headphone industry in many ways, both from a design and a functionality perspective. So definitely, definitely agree with that. Something else we've been kind of jumping around the bush on is incremental innovation. I've had guests on very different sides of the spectrum, guests that say we have to break everything to innovate, and those that say incremental innovation is just as innovative as other innovation. So I, I'm curious to know where you stand on incremental innovation. Do you truly believe it's innovation? <laughs> I, I think... I think it is innovation I th because the way I define is, is an innovation is an idea that is giving value to a customer that is kind of scaled in the market so um, and implemented and scaled in the market. So yes, even incremental innovation developments from, in my perspective, are innovation in that sense. And the hard thing is if, if you're trying to go for black and white, where do you draw the line, right? I believe organizations need to do both. Big organizations are successful because they've been very good at incremental innovation. They have been able to 
grow because they've improved their processes, they have improved their product, and they have improved um, how to bring their product to the customer. And that's a lot of process innovation on their way of, to growth. And the point is only that incremental incre innovation only works so long. So there will always come a point where uh, there's no more growth potential if we only do incremental innovation. So a company needs to do both at the same time. And the difficulty is that they require different cultures, different different KPIs we mentioned before, um, different governance systems. So that's really the challenge. How do I, as an organization, do both at the same time, incremental and, and more radical innovation under the same mm -hmm. roof? And I find that really interesting because I feel like the trifecta of the companies that you've created, Sparkworks, the Innovation Consultancy, Spark Labs, the Educational Nonprofit Organization, and Spark Academy, and Upskilling and Remote Education Arm, to me it sounds like that th those three companies kind of tackle coming at innovation from different angles. So curious about the objectives of your work and how this trifecta helps push innovation forward for companies. So retrospectively, um, it always looks very strategically, but when we're very honest, these things also developed over time with chance. We actually started off with our educational lab at the EPFL um, and then later at the ETH. Those are the Federal Institutes for Technology here in Switzerland, in Lausanne and in Zurich. So we started off because we saw a need for better education across disciplines that is very close to practical industry work. We started it almost like a grassroots movement. There was no, no such um, education at those big universities that are actually ranking with the top universities on the world, but they don't really mm -hmm. offer this kind of programs um, to the students, at least back then when we started 10 years ago. So we started off with that, and we're still very much believing in that. We believe that a big part of our impact is by educating these very, very bright minds um, that have a subject matter expertise in, let's say, engineering, um, and giving them um, kind of, I would even say, the leadership. It's not just the in in innovation tools, but also the leadership tools, like collaboration in the end is a leadership tool. I believe also agility is an empathy. Those are all leadership principles and tools today. We're giving them those and sending Sending them out in the world. We believe that that makes quite a big impact. So we started this. Today, it's it's great for us in, in our work to still have that academia arm because we're close to research. We see what Professor Borsoni, um, who is the head of the Technology Innovation Management team and chair here at the ETH, what he and his research team are doing, um, the cool studies that they're doing and the findings that we're doing. And some of these findings we can bring back to our industry work. I think um, mm -hmm. that's also what's very fascinating to him because unfortunately here in Switzerland, um, I guess more and then, for example, in the US, there's not that much conversation between industry and academia, um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. as I say. So we're a bit bridging, bridging that gap between academia and industry. And that's very valuable um, to us because we're, we're continuous learners, but also to, to our clients. Um, then, of course, it's also been a talent pool for us. I mean, um, I have had um, former students of mine that are now working with me or that are now working in companies that are our clients. And then the third, Spark Academy, uh, we, we found it 
beginning of last year, but we've been working on uh, on the project much longer than that. It actually started with one of our clients um, who had been working with us as a consultancy. Um, they were one of the few companies that I've worked with that actually managed to change the way of working and their culture from the ground up. So they wow. are now really, really almost, I would say, 70, 80% of the organization is now working in a very agile manner. And for that, they needed a lot of external coaching, which at the beginning, the first two, three years, they always got external uh, coaches for. But they're a global company, so they didn't just need coaches here in Switzerland. They also needed them in, in Cuba or, or in the Philippines. So how do you ensure you have the same quality across coaches globally, the same language, and at the same time, obviously, that's also quite expensive. So they were in year three or two, and they were like, okay, now we have a lot of people that have been working that way in in our company, we have the chance here to build internal capabilities and um, build, they call them um, catalysts, so innovation catalysts internally. But again, that needs to happen at scale. We're not talking about 10 people, we're talking about hundreds of people over time. Um, mm -hmm. So they came with us to the questions, how, how do we do this? How can we develop something where we teach these people the necessarily skills in a very practical and applied manner? And it had to happen, um, at least for, for the majority of the time, it had to happen remote. Um, so with them already working very, very um, agile, they were open towards uh, um, us really developing it with them, experimenting and trying the best setup with them. The problem is with remote or online training um, that the KPIs of learning are not the same in, as in normal learning. So I don't totally. know, Coursera and, and Co, they measure their success by, by saying, oh, okay, we had thousands of people going through the funnel. That basically means, or certified, that means that these thousand people watched the videos from the beginning to the yeah, end. Yeah, it doesn't mean they actually learned or did yeah. takeaways from that. Exactly. So that was a big challenge. How do we measure if they're actually learning the right thing and if they're able to apply it? So that's sure. one out of the value propositions from Academy. And we basically grew it from there, from that one company. Um, and now we founded a, or a spin-off um, called Spark Academy, where we're now offering that to other clients. And we're still improving um, and, and, and trying out um, different things. The long-term vision is here that we're gathering a lot of data on learning. So the long-term vision is that we can, by the help of that data, we have really, really good data sets um, because we're not like a Coursera having individuals participating, but it's um, cohorts of groups of companies where we know every individual profile very, very well. Um, with that learning data, we can develop, hopefully in the future, customized learning programs. So we know individual A um, learns best um, through this and this format or setup, and then we can customize it to that person. That's um, the grand vision here. So I guess all of them are still somehow connected with learning, which I think is at the heart of, of innovation, at least uh, the way I practice and see it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Linda, it's so exciting to see how you're innovating on top of innovating on top of innovating. So much knowledge and, and insights from this episode. So before I do let you go, I wanted to ask you one last innovation question. And that is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now and 10 years from now? 
So one month from now, I think I'll still be running my team. Um, fall <laughs> is usually high season for us. So hopefully we'll be busy enjoying lots of interesting projects. I know with COVID last year, fall was not as it used to be, but things are picking up. I really hope um, that this fall will bring, as I said, lots of interesting projects in different fields. So that's um, one month from now. One year from now, um, I'm also currently doing my Oxford degree. I'm hopefully have that in my hand by then. Um, oh regarding... my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been actually able to go except for the first time um, because everything has been remote um, now the past year and a half. So I'm really excited to go for graduation in December and then have that degree in hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then regarding the business, I mean, um, we're exploring various different diversification strategies, entering new markets, expanding kind of the value chain of our offerings, doing different things, potentially merging with other companies. Um, I mean, we're very early stage in innovation, really exploring, are we tackling the right problems? Um, but there's a lot that follows after that, which um, we don't necessarily right now have the competencies in-house, but we could, um, if we merge or collaborate with more players, we could potentially um, just offer a better value chain for our clients. So I hope to have made a good step in that direction. Um, and I do believe, and when we're talking about industry um, and um, our, my industry being kind of innovation consultancy is now here for Sparkworks, I do believe potentially if you look at advertisement um, companies about 10, 20 years ago, you also had a lot of little players everywhere. And then over time, um, they started to partner up. So now you have a couple of huge big agencies and at these Something similar, or I believe my, maybe something similar will happen um, with innovation agencies. A, companies realize that they need to do innovation also in-house. Formerly, companies didn't have marketing um, um, departments in-house, but more and more innovation is happening in-house. And then B, I see innovation agencies um, coming together um, in order to really offer bigger value chains and off expand to markets. And then the last question of 10 years from now, um, I hope that the Spark Empire, as we like to call it, is successful, hopefully internationally. Well, from my side, uh, by then, maybe someone else has taken over the lead. Um, I would love to still be on the board, being involved, but I also love the project. So uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, there's a lot of parts that go into you know, the managing um, that has nothing to do with innovation. It's just about leading a team, leading a business. I'm happy if someone else takes over accounting, etc., all of these and things. And taxes. <laughs> taxes, exactly. And, and then maybe um, besides that, I can explore some other dreams of mine, like opening a restaurant or designing a child's toy or, or finding another company. Who knows, right? <laughs> I love it. So, so exciting. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us, Linda. It's really been a pleasure and so much fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember... When women innovate, we all win.